It is indeed a terrific privilege we have tonight that health has sufficiently been blessed upon you and me to allow us this afforded opportunity. And as I stand before you tonight and look over the audience, I see that we indeed have a good audience tonight. For that, we're so thankful and appreciative that God has so abundantly been with each of us today to that extent. Again, if I might express a word of appreciation to those men that will take the lead and take care of those things next Lord's Day. And in my absence, I certainly appreciate that very much. And indeed, the trustworthiness that our elders, as well as the congregation as a whole, are willing to place upon those men is truly a genuine privilege for this church. And I know the Pippin congregation as a whole will be abundantly blessed. My family and I would, of course, covet your prayers upon our behalf for the character of that meeting, that things will go successfully, productively, and well, and, and in fact, the sight of heaven. As you can see on the wall to, to my left, Jesus' second miracle will be the subject of our time together tonight for our lesson. I would hope that you have kept your finger marked in that place that Lucas read a moment ago in John the fourth chapter. We will return, in fact, to that in just a few moments. Some introductory thoughts as we prepare, though, for a more extended discussion of that might be in order. And could I ask you to begin it with me in this way? The four gospel accounts that open the New Testament are indeed rich treasure houses of information. For they give us glimpses ever so majestic in their structure of the very life of our Savior. The decisions that He made, the choices in life that He made, and in fact, the description and character of the things that he did, the things that he spoke, and even at times, impressions of the thoughts that he allowed to cross his mind. In every instance, it is in fact a rather penetrating examination for you and me, isn't it, to try to imitate his life as closely as you and I are able to do it. That imitation, certainly in some instances, is not entirely possible not the least of which would be the miracles he performed. We well understand that you and I are not given the capability by God to perform miracles in the way that, of course, the Savior could. How often did we remember that Jesus was able to suspend the laws of nature for a time? He himself walked on the water in the 14th chapter of, of Matthew. In fact, he even allowed Peter to do the same for at least a little while. The realization, though, of his ability to perform those miracles spans so many aspects of life. We just noted he could suspend the law of gravity when that was a needed and necessary thing. Furthermore, he could, in fact, miraculously heal and on the spot, as he did blind Bartimaeus in the 10th chapter of Mark. On other occasions, he could raise the dead, as he did Lazarus in John 11. All of that helps us see that quite often those miracles had two very fantastic aspects to them. One of which it was a very clear expression of the manifest power of God that the one in presence, in that instance Jesus, was an emissary from heaven and thus was able to directly state the powerful things that heaven wished mankind to know. In essence, the miracles authenticated who he was. But a second aspect of those miracles, not infrequently they were such that they actually touched the lives of individuals in a way that those individuals would never forget. So much so that quite often those individuals desired to go with the Savior. It's still an interesting thing to remember that man in Mark chapter 5. 
this one was so overcome with the nature of possession, the, the demoniac, the Gadarene demoniac, he's often called, so overwhelmed by that possession that he wandered in the cemeteries, he had superhuman strength, unable to be bound by the things of men, and yet when Jesus touched his life, cast out that demon, he was found in his right mind and he wanted to follow the Savior. He wanted to be where Jesus was and aid him in the proclamation and in an expression of thanksgiving to him. Jesus would not permit it though, he said, you go and you rather tell those what the Lord or what has been done for you. He did that. Oh, how many individuals he brought the message of Jesus to, and that still is a fantastic consideration. When you and I consider the nature of miracles, we'll turn tonight to one that may not be one of the most well-known of the miracles Jesus performed. It was his second one in terms of what's revealed in the New Testament. In John the fourth chapter, verses 46 to 54, Let's look more interestingly and somewhat more carefully at that second miracle and see if we can't extract from it some things that might be of interesting and valuable import to us as well. In order to consider the second, it might do us well for a moment to at least revisit the chronology of how this second one came about. We're told in verses 46 and 47 of this chapter it took place in a little village called Cana. C-A-N-A -A is the spelling. Cana, we understand, was the very place where the Lord's first miracle was performed as well. So that little village had the distinction that the first two of Jesus' miracles were performed in the same place. This little village situated approximately five miles northeast of Nazareth. It was a, certainly a very highly populated place in the ancient world. Furthermore, it was not the most well-known place in Palestine either. However, again, it had a notable distinction with regard to the first two of the Savior's miracles. Jesus, as we learn back in chapter 2, had in fact begun His ministry not long after this, and He at that point proceeded to, to keep the Passover at Jerusalem. The second chapter of John unfolds that drama to us, for it was on that occasion, at least at one time, the Lord drove out the money changers because they had turned the character of worship into something far less than what it ought to have been. In fact, didn't Jesus say that they had turned it into a den of thieves? It was supposed to be a house of worship and a house of prayer, and they had turned it into nothing more than an exchanging place for money. The Lord prepared a, a cord and drove out the animals, turned over the tables of the money changers. It was, though, after that scene that we noticed that He went into Judea and labored that area. That's recorded for us in John 3, verse 22. Upon completion of His work in that given region, He proceeded to travel northward. It would do us well to remember the geography, at least very broadly, of Palestine, it was divided into three parts. The northernmost part was known as Galilee. The middle section was known as Samaria. The southernmost part was known as Judea. Jerusalem was housed in Judea. As Jesus was thus preparing from there to pass toward Galilee, the most direct route would have taken him through Samaria. And hence, the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to John is an inspired record of one stop the Lord made in Samaria on that journey toward Galilee. In fact, it's a very well-known story. He paused beside a well, 
that well at Sychar and engaged in a lengthy consideration with a Samaritan woman of all people. During the course of that conversation, he told her that he was the Messiah. And furthermore, she being sufficiently convinced of that fact, shared that news with many in the community and in the city, so much so that they came out in mass to see who it was of whom she spoke. Having completed, though, that stay at Sychar, he then proceeded onward to Galilee, the very place of the destination from which he had, he had intended to go. He stopped at Cana, that first place we had mentioned earlier. It was where his first miracle had occurred, and now he is back to Cana, and the second miracle is about to take place. Lucas read for us from verses 46 to 54. Let's highlight some of the things that we learned in that reading. First of all, at Cana, a nobleman comes to speak with the Savior. As that nobleman comes to convey information to Jesus, the nobleman had a reason for this visit. And it wasn't, we might well say, due to his admiration of Jesus, at least initially. He came because he had a little boy at home that was sick. So sick, in fact, that later in the text it is said that he had a fever, and furthermore, he was near to the point of death. This little boy was such that his father was exceedingly concerned for his well-being. This nobleman thus came to Jesus. It would appear that he had exhausted the other opportunities for the healthful well-being of his son. The language would seem to be such that the nobleman had a degree of frustration in his words and furthermore a degree of desperation. He was down to his last straw. He comes to Jesus hoping that the Savior could provide some assistance. As he came to speak to Jesus, isn't it interesting to note a bit about where this nobleman came from? We are told in verse number 46 that the nobleman's son was sick at Capernaum. Now remember, Jesus was at Cana. So that nobleman had traveled from Capernaum to Cana to in fact ask and plead with the Savior to heal his son. That itself was a distance of some 17 to 18 miles we gain at least some impression of the desire on the part of that nobleman to make his way to where he knew the Savior was, for he needed so earnestly to ask his request and to ask a favor of him. Immediately in verse number 48, when Jesus heard the man's request, the Savior had a very interesting response to him. Number 48 says, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. It would seem that the Savior had an interesting spiritual message to convey. However, that was not the interest of this nobleman. I have a sick son at home, Jesus, with all due respect. Can the sermon wait till later? He is about to the point of death. Is there anything that you can do? Upon impressing the Savior with that idea, perhaps, verses 49 and following, Jesus does respond. He heals the nobleman's son and, in fact, heals him from a distance. Jesus did not even proceed to Capernaum. He simply pronounced the word and the son was healed. In verses 51 to 54, we notice that the nobleman believed because when he turned and began to go homeward, some of his servants met him in the way and they said, "This your son is living, he is well. 
the nobleman asked immediately this question, what time did the fever leave him? When did he begin to show signs of recovery? They said about the seventh hour. And the nobleman knew then and there that was the very time that Jesus had told him that his son would be healed. Putting it all together, the text then closes by saying, he and his household all believed in Jesus and were thus greatly convicted and convinced of the character of who he was and what he was able to do. This healing of the nobleman's son maybe begs several lessons that you and I might extract from it. What might be three things that you and I could learn that might be beneficial and helpful to our lives as we revisit some of the practical scenes of this second miracle? First of all, in verse number 47, let's note four of the words that occur in that verse. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him. The first thing that might be of observation is that the nobleman came to be aware of information that Jesus had left, come to the part of Galilee, and was there at Cana. And then the text says, he went unto him. Where is it that the nobleman went for assistance? Where is it that he went for help? And for that necessary matter that would be of some measure of the healthfulness for his son, he went unto Jesus. As mentioned, he traveled that 17-mile distance, and to do that on foot was no few moments investment. No doubt that was several hours at least. And yet he was willing not only to do that, but apparently in haste or as quickly as possible, because his son was near death. He needed to get there and to beseech the Lord's favor as quickly as possible. As this nobleman then came to Jesus, notice again the wording. He says, he was at the point of death, the identification of the nobleman's son. And then in verse 49, the nobleman himself responded, Sir, come down ere my child die. Notice the command housed within that statement. He didn't ask Jesus to come. He said, come down, direct commandment, if you will. Here was a father desperate because his boy was about to lose his life. Perhaps you and I can imagine as a parent how concerned a parent would be with a child so desperately sick. No doubt, perhaps this one was aware that here was a man who had worked things that were amazing. Maybe he had heard about what had happened at Cana in the turning of the water to wine. Maybe he had heard about what had happened in Jerusalem when he overturned the money changers' tables. It would seem he certainly understood that there was a potential within this man to help heal my son. He went to Jesus. I suppose that asks us the question today, what about our condition, mine and yours? To whom shall you and I go? Is it not the case that there is also death to be considered? Not physical, mind you, but spiritual. We are told in Ephesians 2 verse 1 that all who have sinned and trespassed are dead. Note the language. All who are overcome with trespasses and sins are dead. At one time in life, that included you and me. Who should we go to? Is there a doctor in Cookville to provide assistance? Is there a pastor, a reverend, a religious healer anywhere in Putnam County to provide us the necessary aid? 
I'd submit to you we would do well to do what the nobleman did. He went unto him. And thankfully, those within the sound of my voice who have put on the Savior in baptism, you also went to him. And your life has never been the same. Just as the nobleman recognized the beauty and power of the healing of his son, so too that deadness that was descriptive of your life has been taken away. You've been quickened, in fact, have you not? Later in that same chapter, it is said of Christ, He hath quickened us from those trespasses and sins by virtue of the mercy of God extended through Him. Ephesians 2 verse 4. That thought then is so parallel it just can't help but lead us to ask other questions. There was a time in John chapter 6 when something like that was asked. Jesus had just taught a very compelling sermon. In fact, it was so direct, so straightforward, so blunt, and so to the point that many were unable to take that which he taught. And so they turned and walked away. The text, in fact, reads in this fashion, they walked with him no more implying that not merely for a little while, but they didn't come back anytime soon either. They walked with him no more. The lesson was hard. Isn't it still true that the way of the Savior is not very palatable to a lot of people? To them, it's just too hard. It demands too much. I can't do too many things that I otherwise wish that I could do. On that occasion, Jesus asked a very great question to those that chose to remain. He said, will you also go away? Peter, in that aggressive and rather bold fashion as he often exhibited it, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. John 6, verse 68. Peter pronounced it so eloquently, didn't he? Lord, where else could we go? Only you, only you have the words of eternal life. Doesn't that echo the same sentiment that Peter uttered in Acts 4 verse 12? Here was a man himself who he and the fellow apostle John were in a position where they had already been severely reprimanded because they had preached Jesus and they would preached the resurrection. In fact, so rebuking was that statement given to them. They were straightforwardly told, don't ever preach in this man's name again. However, before that chapter is over, Peter and John are going to be standing in the same place from which they had previously been arrested preaching the same message. Perhaps verse 12 illustrates why. Peter thus, in answer to those that questioned him, said, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter couldn't keep quiet and neither could John. They said, We cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. Acts 4 verse 20. Is it then any wonder that you and I today, when we, like the nobleman, come to Jesus, we are those who are not the same as we once were. We have been washed. We've been cleansed. We've been sanctified. And as such, having come to the Savior, we are able to be those that are the successful and powerful and fruitful followers of Him. That description of this nobleman maybe leads us to see that there are many other things he did not do. The nobleman didn't merely remain in Capernaum and hope that Jesus would come to Capernaum. After all, later Jesus would visit Capernaum many times. But he couldn't wait. He went to, went to Cana and there found Jesus. 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if in our world far more were of that kind of position? They would in fact ardently, zealously, and with great energy and enthusiasm seek out the Lord and His truth, not accepting any man's perspective, opinions, or any other proclamations. This man went to the source of the matter, Jesus Himself. We live in a sad world in which so many are happy to accept what someone thinks that Jesus said, or what someone hopes that Jesus said, or what someone has been told that Jesus said. Notice, none of those things are necessarily what Jesus said. It's only someone's impression of what He said. And as you and I well know, in far many instances and times, that's not really what Jesus said. This man must be highly complimented, for not only did he respond to gain action immediately for his son, he went to where the actual source was. If only the world would do that today, to go to this source and no other, and let it rightly speak by rightly dividing it, and letting it portray the very truth of heaven. But maybe there's another lesson we can extract also from this. In addition to this one, let us notice verse number 48. In verse number 48, we notice that Jesus responded to the nobleman. Here was a man who came with a very dramatic desire to have Jesus act on behalf of his son. And yet Jesus said, first words out of the Savior's mouth, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. There have been those who have charged Jesus with being rather uncaring, uncompassionate, and unloving in that response. Because notice, here was a desperate father who, out of great love and concern for his son, besought the Lord for aid and for help. And yet Jesus said, except you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. That doesn't sound, at least in the reading of some, the way that a loving Savior would have responded. I might submit to you, we ought not <clears throat> question the Savior. He was the sinless, perfect Son of God. What might a good lesson from that very verse be for you and me today? I would submit that there's a rather powerful lesson for the nobleman in it, but also a rather powerful lesson for us. First of all, Jesus, remember, was able to read the thoughts, the intents, and the character of the heart of those whom He met. Admittedly, you and I are not able to do that. I can't read anyone's thoughts, and you can't read mine. You can't peer into the heart of another individual and know what they're thinking and read their intentions and appreciate their motives. God has not given any human that capability, but Jesus had it. John 2, verses 24 and 25 absolutely de describe that aspect of Jesus. When Jesus encountered this nobleman, as he read that nobleman's heart, as he saw what was of greatest importance and significance to him, could it be that this nobleman was of a mindset to where he was of much like those Pharisees and Sadducees who desired to see physical signs and wonders before he would ever engage in any faith for Jesus. That could well be the critical hindrance in the life of that nobleman. If that be true, and certainly it's a possibility, 
we notice if that's the case, Jesus thus told that man out up front, you need to recognize the nature of faith in who I am, not merely for what I'm able to do. The miracles were dramatic, but a far greater character was he's the Son of God. Jesus wanted this nobleman to understand him for who he was, for what he represented, for who sent him. Not merely because he could raise the dead or in some other way do a miraculous thing. That lesson, it would seem, would have a great impact upon the nobleman because by the time it's over, he did believe. He was convicted. He was convinced. And this miracle of the healing of his son and the compassion showed in that way was a dramatic thing in his life and that of his family. Might I submit to you that rebuke, though, that Jesus submitted is in fact the lesson I wish us to consider briefly this evening. <clears throat> there are instances and occasions when rebuke is a needful thing. I suspect many of us are of a character that we don't often like confrontation. And we do not always prefer to stand four square and enter into an argument or to address a controversy. But may I submit to you that in the same way that Jesus here found the occasion right to touch a person's life with a rebuke, you and I might also find the same to be true. That close friend who does trust greatly in you, maybe you are the one person who in great tactfulness but also in firmness could instruct that person that he or she is wrong that he or she is improper in their behavior, that they've placed their trust in an uncertain place. Again, firmness, a rebuke might well be in order. You and I in love can issue those rebukes and often touch a person's life in a way that they'll never forget because upon a proper response to that rebuke, they may accept in love the kind criticism that you or I extended and upon that acceptance, turn their life in repentance to what it ought to have been in the first place. And isn't that a wonderful end? Might we notice, of course, at the outset, we do not know if a person is going to take the criticism in the way that we would like them to. Might we notice, maybe in all instances that shouldn't matter. If the truth needs to be spoken in a kind rebuke, may you and I when that opportunity in best way presents itself, choose to do that because we can then do exactly what Paul did who also rebuked more than once when the time was before him. There was an occasion in Galatians, the second chapter, when Peter, in fact, was in the wrong. Here was the apostle Peter in the wrong and yet Paul said, I withstood him to the face. Why, Paul? Because he was to be blamed. Here was an occasion when error was in the process of being supported. Things were going on that ought not to have been, and Paul had the courage and the bravery to rebuke Peter to the face. How did that turn out? Was it good? From every record we have in the New Testament, it was. In fact, later we see that even Peter referred to Paul in one of his epistles in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 to 17. He referred to Paul and even said, Our beloved brother. Peter didn't become angry at Paul. It would appear that he at least at one point accepted him as a brother in faith who out of enough love rebuked him when such was necessary. May you and I deal the same way. We notice Jesus rebuked the nobleman 
it would seem, for the character of what he desired in his heart. May you and I, when the evidence presents and the opportunity is present, kindly, tactfully, but firmly, issue a statement of truth and rebuke when that's the right thing to do. I've listed some other passages for us to consider. In Titus 2, verse 15, we are there told, as we read those famous words that Paul uttered to Timothy, or rather to Titus, he in fact told him to rebuke. That is to say, as a part of his work as a preacher, he was to rebuke. You and I, of course, can feel the, necess the necessity to, to in fact accomplish the same. In Galatians 4, verse 19, Paul asked the haunting question, Am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? It's still the case that the best friends you and I will ever have is that person who loves our soul enough to rebuke us when we're in the wrong. That's sometimes a hard pill for our society to swallow, isn't it? We like to be right. We don't ever like someone to question us. But if I'm in the wrong and it may jeopardize my standing in heaven, the best thing anyone could ever do is to kindly but tactfully question me so that I can learn the truth of the matter and make things right if that's needed. We should be thankful for a brother or a sister that loves us enough to rebuke us. But maybe a third lesson. Having looked at these two, let's turn our attention also to verse number 53 and look at the third and final lesson of our time tonight. Verse 53 of John 4 reads as follows. So the Father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. The nobleman believed, and his whole house. As we have previously stated in the lesson tonight, that was a tremendous compliment to him. For the nature of having his son healed touched him in a very vivid way. But might we notice that this father apparently was of a mindset to desire to see signs and wonders, and he had the privilege of seeing it. His son was healed. You and I, though, live in a day and in a time when there are not miracles like that being done. And a good question that any of us might ask would relate to Jesus. In any of the things he taught in the New Testament, could you or I hold up our hand if the question was asked, did you ever see Jesus in the flesh? There isn't one of us that could say yes to that. You see, he ascended back to heaven long before you and I were ever born. If someone were to ask, did you ever see Jesus walk on water? There isn't one of us that could say, well, I literally saw him. If someone were to ask, did you ever see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? There isn't one of us that could say we literally saw him with our physical eye. I might submit, you can probably see where this logic is leading. You and I are in a somewhat different position than the nobleman was in the sense that he had the opportunity to physically see Jesus in the flesh, to see Him perform miracles. I might submit that the New Testament places a grand, grand blessing upon those who believe in the Lord, though they never saw Him. You might have already raced in your mind to that point of Thomas. Thomas was one of those that after the Lord was resurrected, he had the power and the firmness of mind to say, unless I see the prince in his hands, 
and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas said that in John 20, verses 20 and, 20 and following. Isn't it amazing? Jesus appeared to that group of apostles. As he appeared to them, he addressed Thomas. He said, Thomas, look at my hands. Put your hand in my side. When Thomas did that, he responded with these five words, My Lord and my God. Thomas saw and he believed. The interesting thing is, this is what Jesus said next. Thomas, blessed are you, for you have seen and believed. He said, blessed more are those who believe, having not seen. Have you ever thought about the privileged position in which you and I are? Thomas, you see, didn't have the sacred scriptures at his disposal. You and I have not only isolated incidents in the life of Jesus, we have the entirety of all the Holy Spirit desired us to have. And we have all of it in perfect form recorded for our reading anytime we wish it. And as we read this, we can then rest upon the language of John 14, 9, when there to Philip, Jesus said, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. When you and I read this, apply it to our life. Understand the thoroughness of what's presented. We may not have seen Jesus literally with our eye, but with the eye of faith, we have seen more than Thomas could ever have seen. And we have seen the grandeur of what Thomas never had access to, the power of this gospel, all the things contained in it. That in fact does present the fact that there are some in our world today who seem to be much like Thomas. Have you ever spoken with someone and they seem to be of a mindset, well, until I see it, I'm not going to believe it. And so there are many religions who in fact profess to operate on a basis like that. They claim, well, if you are saved, you can speak in tongues. And so you might have individuals ask you questions like this. I was saved, and my preacher told me, and my friends tell me that I should be able to speak in tongues, but I yet can't. And so they're troubled in mind, anxious in spirit, because they've been told they're saved, but there's no open evidence for it as far as they can tell. And they're beside themselves in despair. You see false teachings behind it. They are demanding this open sign like speaking in tongues, and the Lord never promised that to you and me. That passed away when the miracles of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. The speaking in tongues that so many in our world today not only demand, but they openly profess that anybody that's a Christian can do so. And thus those who can't question their salvation. Speaking in tongues or being able to prophesy or being able to interpret or any of the other miraculous gifts unfolded in the New Testament, those matters are being used in entirely the wrong fashion today. They were never given to lift up yourself and make yourself a manifest token of the blessing of God. In fact, to interpret them that way is to completely miss the point. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 that the purpose for those gifts was to edify the church. They weren't given to edify the person at all, to lift his name up and to be an encouragement of himself. That is to say, they were not selfish in character. They were for the benefit of the church. 
Thus today, those who look to think that they have to be able to see it in order to feel salvation have missed the point. Jesus again said, Blessed are they who believe, though they have not seen. As we use the eye of faith to read in these scriptures about Jesus and all the promises of heaven, we can have just as much knowledge, assurance, and confidence in Jesus as if, perhaps even more so, than if we had seen him in the flesh. What a blessing and what a privilege it is to have access to the Gospels. These lessons that we have shared based on the second miracle that Jesus performed have been challenging, and maybe we can summarize our lesson in this brief fashion. In looking at this second miracle, the healing of the nobleman's son, we have noted three lessons that can be very valuable to us. First, he went unto him. Namely, the nobleman went to Jesus. Let us always go to the Savior when we have difficulties and problems. He will have the answer, and He will have the assistance, and He will have the help. Secondly, Jesus rebuked this gentleman for the desire he had to see signs and wonders, and that helped us see that there are occasions when you and I are in the right to issue a rebuke to an individual who is in error, an individual who is in the wrong way. And then finally, we've noted that this man had the privilege of seeing and for that reason, he believed. Greater still are those who believe, though they have never seen in the flesh. How blessed you and I are tonight to be able to look again with that eye of faith and appreciate the thoroughness, the eternity, and the destiny of those that, are the, that, that, that belong to the Lord. If you tonight do not belong to Him, let tonight be the night in which you make a life-changing decision and not just life, I might say, in the flesh, life in eternity. For Jesus uttered in John 11, verses 25 and 26, that great thing in which he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. Do you believe that, friend? If you have not placed confidence in that, that there's life beyond the grave, that there's a destiny waiting beyond, and that there's preparation to be made for it. Tonight needs to be the night you begin that journey anew, to where you, in fact, allow Jesus to welcome you into His loving arms, and He will safeguard you through this life, and you walk near Him, beside Him, and with Him all the days of your life. Jesus asks this. In fact, He requires it. You must contact His blood in order to be saved that has prerequisite notions of this. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the only begotten Son of God. And then be baptized. In the act of that baptism, the power is not in the water. It's in the blood that is contacted by virtue of the act of baptism. And in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, it's at that point your sins are washed away and you enter into Jesus. Walk with Him faithfully until death, and upon so doing, when it comes time to shuttle off the mortal coil of your flesh, you then will have an opportunity to witness all the grandeur of, a, of an eternity awaiting you. If you need to come back to your first love tonight, we would pray with you, we would pray for you, we would pray that God would forgive you of those sins, but you need to repent of them, and you need to confess them to Him. If we could pray on your behalf in that way tonight or aid you in your initial response, let us do it, would you not, while together we stand and while we sing.